Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at International Cinema at Brigham Young University. This podcast is being taped during our eighth week of BYU's winter semester 2021. I'm Doug Weatherford, co-director of International Cinema, and I'm joined by Brian Price, my colleague in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese. Brian and I are both Latin Americanists, but with special focus on Mexico. Along with his work on Mexican literature, Brian is co-editor of a forthcoming book titled The Lost Cinema of Mexico, From Lucha Libre to Cine Familiar and Other Churros, and he is currently finishing a manuscript on rock literature and film in Mexico from 1955 to 2015. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Doug. Glad to be here. The theme that uh, we have this week at International Cinema is migration and violence, and Brian and I will be discussing the 2020 film Identifying Features by Mexican director Fernanda Valadez. I want to give everybody out there a fair warning that this is a film that is difficult to talk about without giving away spoilers, and Identifying Features has a very big twist at its conclusion, so you might consider seeing the movie before listening to this podcast. Brian, this film, as I mentioned to you previously, has a 100% Rotten Tomato rating for both the critic and audience ratings on Rotten Tomatoes, which is pretty amazing because I I don't think I've ever seen that before. It's a fairly dark film, but it has been very well received. And I was just wondering if you might comment on the strengths of this film and what might drive that popularity. Yeah, I'd be happy to. You're right. It's It's a film that when I was watching it, I, I inherently thought, boy, I wish Doug could have picked a more depressing film or wonder if it would be possible to do so. Cause it's very hard kind of gut wrenching movie about immigration and about violence, uh, which are quite popular topics right now. When we think about film, we think about literature, we think about the way that Mexico and Central America gets presented, particularly to us audiences. I'm thinking back on films, like Sicario, the the two Sicario films, even the redo of Miss Bala that came out a couple of years ago, where Mexico is always projected and presented to us as this site of economic, political instability, where violence reigns supreme and nauticals run around with absolute impunity. And a lot of times I've noticed that these films tend to take on kind of a geopolitical tint where the, the filmmaker starts commenting about the drug war or what's happening at the governmental level. But what this film does so absolutely powerfully and so beautifully is look at the impact of these terrible events that have been going on since 2006 and reduces them down to the grain, the essence of individual experience, where we see the pain and uh, the suffering that takes place along the border and as these migrants move north in a very, very personal way. Not only that, but the film is beautifully shot. The cinematography work is amazing, from really beautiful landscape shots to very intimate close-ups on the main character, Magdalena. And a really compelling story of a mother's love, a son's search for his family, and then all of the commentary about about violence and about immigration. So it's a brutal film, but boy, is it beautiful. And it just, it shocked me in ways that I don't think a film has shocked me in a long time. You know, Brian, I, I think it's uh, quite surprising to me that the film that does end 
with perhaps such a downbeat to it has been so popular. I have to admit that um, it, it reminded me of another film that had a very powerful impact on Mexican audiences in particular, and that was Los Olvidados mm -hmm. by Luis Buñuel that we also showed earlier in this semester. And I'm a little bit concerned that people are going to think that uh, having shown these two films, uh, that this is all that Mexican cinema has to offer. But these are two of Mexico's perhaps best films from uh, Los Olvidados from 1950, this one from 2020. And both of them have in common a desire not to idealize a situation that uh, can be very difficult. And I'm wondering if perhaps we could go down a couple of paths here. One of them would be uh, the connections of this film to other texts, both literary and filmic from Mexico. And the other might be the human character that you mentioned in the film, because one of the unique things about um, identifying features is the fact that most of the major creators of this film, writer, cinematographer, director, were women. Mm -hmm. And uh, so perhaps uh, that's another thing that uh, I think gives this film a real interesting quality. But let's start with the first one. How do you see this film fitting into the Mexican artistic scene with what's come before in literature and film and art or, or what have you? That's a great question. When I think about this in terms of connections, like the visual aesthetic, the one that really comes to mind is, is Rigadas, which might be an odd pick considering what you said about this being primarily a female production team. But Rigadas has this amazing minimalist style that's approximating slow cinema. And uh, here, Balades does a fantastic job of drawing on those techniques. I'm thinking particularly of a short film that he did for a 2010 compilation movie called Revolución. And the, the short was called Este es mi reino. And what you see in that film is a bunch of people gathering together for a barbecue. And as the night kind of wears on, it kind of devolves into this, this bacchanal where everyone is gathered around the fire and dancing and drinking and jumping. And in the movie, identifying features, the scenes where the, where the narcos are, or whoever these people who have pulled the, the, the victims off the bus and are killing them, really seems to kind of evoke that aesthetic. So that's at least one point of reference that I'm thinking of. You know me, and I, I love the literature of Juan Rufo, who is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of uh, that country's greatest novelists, and is also a person that uh, wrote with an eye towards uh, showing a reality that perhaps wasn't a part of some of the more uh, nationalistic and idealistic representations of Mexico, of the muralist, for example, or of golden sure. age Mexican cinema. It felt to me that uh, there was a fair amount of influences from a number of sources in this film, but certainly Juan Rufo could be there as well. Carlos Sardregadas that you mentioned. We've already talked about Luis Buñuel. Mm -hmm. uh, do you see this film as being completely new in its representation, or do you agree that, um, that there is a lot of homage or at least a play uh, on other authors and other filmmakers going on here. Oh, I would definitely say there's a lot of connections. I think Rulfo is a great point of, of view, and I think, of course, no one better to recognize that than you. But since most of this story takes place in 
the provincial areas and these rural backlands where Rulfo stories are set, I can see a real strong connection, particularly in the way that the camera kind of goes and draws on these landscapes. The landscapes here are different, though, than Figueroa or Emilio Fernandez's Golden Age films, which you also know very well. And as you point out, there's this kind of nationalist project behind a lot of those early films. This one, I don't see that project. And I see the landscape being presented as kind of this stark representation of the actual reality instead of these kind of grandiose, majestic, sweeping views of, uh, of Mexico and the landscape, almost kind of this 19th century romantic vision of the land. Here it's different. And I think that bleeds through in Rulfo's writing. Trying to think of some other writers who might kind of go down that path. And, I, you know, there's, for example, a really wonderful contemporary writer named Fernanda Melchor with a novel that's very stark as well. I believe it's called Tiempo de Huracanes, where this kind of bleak, stark life uh, on the outsides of metropolitan centers gets demonstrated. But yeah, definitely Rulfo is there, and I'm trying to think of a couple others that might uh, might fit the mold. I think that um, you know, for those viewers who really loved a movie like Coco, for example, with its very idealistic and uh, happy-go-lucky representation of Mexico, that this film is going to be a, a bit of a, a slap across the face. But would you consider a film like this to be, for example, anti-Mexican? because it is so, so harsh in its attempt to look inward. I don't know if I would say anti-Mexican. Here's the, here's the, always the problem that we run into when we're dealing with, with kind of national film. There's always the balance between representing the beautiful folkloric side of things and contrasting it with the, the harsh realities. Um, I think for a long time, Mexico has been represented in film in such a way that we see the harsh realities. And I, I mentioned earlier the Sicario films, which were pretty big box office hits, largely because there's this kind of militaristic attitude towards fighting the cartels. Uh, there's this grotesque realism in uh, playing to the idea that the border is an area of violence. The border is dangerous, particularly for Americans going across. There's a scene where there's these bodies hanging from a, a bridge, right? And then you get books like The Book of Life or you get Coco, which do have these uh, beautiful artwork and they're focusing on families and they're showing these beautiful, wonderful aspects of Mexican culture that I do believe need more more airtime, right? As scholars, and particularly in Mexico, you and I both know that the reality of Mexican life is much more colorful, much more effervescent, and much more welcoming and warm than what a lot of times we get to see in major media productions. That said, what I like about a film like this is that it's able to show the those kind of harsh realities, but with the same kind of tenderness that we see in films that tend to focus more on the positive side. This isn't a film that glorifies military intervention. This isn't a, a, a movie about tactics or about weapons or about, you know, downing the cartel. It really is a film that 
tries to deal with the question of violence from a very personal and intimate perspective, which is why I love the character of Magdalena, why I love her search for her son. As we get to walk with her through the process of identifying or, or trying to identify what she believes will be the remains of her son. And in this process, we are guided through this kind of sense of hopelessness, the sense of futility that the process of reconciliation and of finding bodies implies. This is a reality. Uh, since 2006, Mexico has more than 100,000 people have died as a result of this uh, ne seeming never-ending drug war. And right. I think a film like Sin Señas Particulares does a good job of showing the human cost. And I think that's something that we need to we need to watch, even though it's hard. I tell my students all the time, the study of the humanities is learning to balance both the good, the beautiful, the virtuous, the uplifting with the sad, the painful, and the violent, because both aspects of, of the human existence kind of meld together yeah, and create like, this thing that we we live yeah absolutely and and i'm thrilled that you gave that answer because i i really kind of wanted to make that point to our listeners who are going to watch this film is that this is a film that yeah i absolutely wouldn't call it anti-mexican at all it mm -hmm. looks in the mirror i think is what it does and it says that there are things that need to be changed that a, a, a diet of uh, cocoa and cocoa all the time is not going to solve problems in Mexico. But at the same time, you know, a film like uh, Identifying Features can be perhaps balanced out with the celebration of Mexican culture. I'm a big believer that we need multiple stories, right? Absolutely. That we don't want all of our stories to be the same. And I hope that people who see this film and and don't see the colorful festive nature of Coco won't give this film the chance that it deserves to tell us a truth that really needs to be told. And it's being told from a Mexican perspective and a female perspective. And let's go back to that mm -hmm. idea. For those of you who don't know, Fernanda Valadez is a young filmmaker. This was her first feature film, directorial debut. And like I mentioned, you know, most of, or many at least, of the crew uh, responsibilities fell on women creators. And I'm wondering if perhaps we can explore a little bit more something you've already talked about. And that is, I, I think uh, that this is a story about a mother who searches. And there feels like this is a film that really tries to portray the angst of a mother who loses a son. Uh -huh. so what can you uh, perhaps add to that comment? I didn't give you a question, but uh, but certainly go from that description. This is a really wonderful point of departure for talking about the movie, because as I was reading through some of the reviews, it was interesting to see the way critics try to locate the film within some certain genres that we already recognize. I saw some people trying to call it a road movie, others trying to call it a psychological thriller neither one of those really fit. I mean, there are some great road movies out there. Hueros, for example, by Rui Palacios. And there are other thrillers and other great films, but this movie doesn't fit that. This is really a movie about a mother who is looking for her child. And, and to some degree, a child who comes back to Mexico looking for his parents, particularly his mother. And, and, and this here now we're speaking of Miguel. I worry that that aspect might get looked over, that in the process of trying to 
shoehorn identifying features into these other genres that tend to be more male dominated, we might lose track of what the real intimate kind of personal involvement of this female character Magdalena is. It's a movie that we follow her from her small town to the border. And in the process, she, she accepts that her son is dead. She finds a surrogate son on the way and the surrogate son is killed by her actual real son. And so there's a lot of interplay with this idea of what does it mean to be a mother? What does it mean to care for someone? What does it mean to, to lose and then to find and then to lose again? The end of the movie where she must accept the body of someone else's child in order to close the case so that the government will stop looking for her son is really the, one of the most horrifying moments of the film when she knows that her son is alive. She knows what he's doing. She knows that he has been dragged into this absolutely, utterly violent life. And yet she must accept someone else's child, someone else's deceased child and call it her own. Um, it's, it's horrifying. I have to admit that when I watched this uh, film again, preparation for our conversation, that I had recently taught the 1947 Mexican film uh, Rio Escondido mm-hmm. that was uh, directed by Emilio Fernandez, photographed by Gabriel Figueroa, two of Mexico's greatest uh, cineasts that we've already mentioned. And in that film, which becomes very symbolic of the state of Mexico, right? We have a mother who becomes a virgin of Guadalupe figure who takes on a couple of children that she'll care for, but uh, that she didn't give birth to, right? And there's one particular scene in which Maria Felix, the famous Mexican actress, says, este niño es México, right? This child is Mexico. And the symbology in the film is very clear, perhaps a little bit too clear, but that's Emilio Fernandez for you. And <laughs> then I came back to this film and it seemed that it's it's not it's not quite as obvious, but it's clear that um, Balades is playing with this idea that uh, este niño es México, this child or this son of mine is Mexico. And the realization that the monster uh, who killed her son that she's looking for is her son, right? And in a very realistic way, but also a very fantastic or or magical or surrealist way, this connection to the evil that has kind of trapped her son and her son has become part of this evil, this diabolical force, I think is, is a real commentary on asking Mexicans to look in the mirror and say, mm. you know, what is the future that we are going to have? What is the future that our children represent for us? And in that respect, the movie is particularly weighty and particularly sad. Do you see that uh, idea within the film? Do you think I'm off track? No, I think you're right on. And I, I appreciate the fact that you've kind of pointed to this Christological apparatus that's used in both films, right? Fernandez playing with the Virgin of Guadalupe. And here we have that instead of calling this character Guadalupe, Balades decides to call her Magdalena. And yet, as we go into the final scenes of the film, one of the things that I, I really love that really struck me as, as fantastic was the camera work when the nautical show up and they're searching for Miguel 
and for Magdalena. We follow from right behind this shadowy silhouetted figure uh, who's carrying the rifle. The rifle has a, a flashlight on it. And so really what we're doing is we're looking into the brush and we're only able to see the spotlight where the flashlight falls. Miguel comes out. He explains that he's just living at his mother's house. This is my mom's place. We're just here. And he's shot and he falls over. And then the flashlight starts to scan the rest of it because the person has heard Magdalena rustling around in the brush. There's a chase scene. And when he finally catches up to her, she's kneeling in this way that to me at least, kind of suggested some of the classical sculpture work that's been done on the Virgin. You know, maybe even this kind of Baroque style where you have her kneeling, looking up, the light coming down, this very heavy claroscuro type of photography showing La Madre Dolorosa, right? The pained mother, the woman who suffers. Which, of course, ties into a lot of the thinking about identity and the role of women in Mexico through a very long intellectual tradition. There is a little bit of national allegory here, and I don't think we can overlook it. But I think that it's much more subtle and much more nuanced than anything Fernandez did. Yeah, Fernandez was anything but subtle. (laughs) Um, But uh, if you look to Balades, of course, she named her character, the, the son of Magdalena's name is Jesus. Uh-huh. Right? Exactly. And, uh, so you've got that very clear distinction. And of course, those who uh, have already seen the film will recognize the fact that there is a surrealist moment in which a diabolical character is foregrounded in front of a fire that burns in the opposite direction. Yeah. Testing this infernal nature. Anyway, yeah, that, that is great. Maybe we, you could talk a little bit about some of the the unreal elements of this film that is intended to be a fairly realistic look at the experiences of many a Mexican mother. Could you maybe give me a little bit more lead on that? I'm, I'm trying to think about kind of what you're thinking of in terms of the unreal elements. In, in other words, in this film that tries to connect to a reality that is going to be very familiar to many Mexican mothers. There is a, a what some people have called magical real. I don't like that term a whole lot. As you know, it comes with a lot of baggage. I certainly use that term to explain a particular sequence in which a devilish character, a character that looks like the devil actually appears within, within the film. Mm-hmm. So there is that uh, surreal element in this film as well. Yeah, so particularly these scenes with the devil. The, the this kind of diabolical figure appears in two scenes. One when we first see the story of how Jesus and his friend Rigo, I think it was his name, are killed. The story is told by an indigenous man who does not speak Spanish, and it's you kind of get these impressions, right? So the, the the indigenous man was on the bus with the boys. When the bus gets stopped, they're pulled off and they're dragged out in front of this fire. And you, in the camera work, goes out of focus, which is really interesting because it it kind of alludes to the sense of shock and distress that the character is feeling as he's perceiving all of these things happen, which then lends itself to the emergence of the, you know, the long tailed devil who stands in front of the fire. It's almost, it's almost like the camera takes on an astigmatism in some ways. What I find, go ahead. Sorry. 
I was just going to say, uh, just to agree with you that it's it's uh, as if the camera is trying to give us a point of view shot without yeah. it being specifically a point of view, right? It's not exactly the eyes of this uh, of this older character, but we are experiencing the event through the shock, like you suggest, through the stigmatism, right? Because he doesn't see particularly well, and perhaps through the linguistic and cultural sensibilities that he would have to imagine this story in a more surreal and more devilish sort of way. Yeah. And I don't, there might be something really interesting to dig in there with kind of this, I don't know if it's a primitivist discourse or not, but the fact that the the story is told as part of an interview, the mother uh, goes around and meets with a number of different people as we're trying, as she's trying to find her son in none of those experiences or those interviews, except for this one, do we ever see the person who's speaking? We always have the camera kind of focused on her listening to the story. But in this particular case, she's talking to this man and we kind of have this this alternation between him and her for a while where he's speaking an indigenous language, uh, his daughter or someone who's there with him interprets. But at some point in the process of narration, we stop hearing the translation. We stop hearing the interpretation into Spanish from this indigenous language. And so as he's telling the story in his own in his own language that unless you happen to speak that language, you don't understand. You get the same kind of feeling of estrangement from what's going on. And you have to rely solely on the visual register to pick up what's going on in the story. Unfortunately, though, because of this kind of astigmatism, this uh, blurry focus, it's hard to kind of get all of the details of what's happening. And it lends the whole situation this kind of ethereal, supernatural feel, which is very unsettling, particularly when at the end of the film, we come back and we see the way that Jesus is drawn into this world, that in fact, in order to survive the massacre that's going on, he has to kill his best friend. Those details are not made clear to us in the first instance of this. In some ways, that kind of fantastic, surrealist mode, I don't want to say softens it because it's still horrific, but it allows us to kind of get the gist of what's going on without all of the the awful, dirty details of really what happens. We are, of course, at the end of the film, exposed to those awful, dirty details. The surrealist kind of protection that's afforded to us by the blurry camera is absolutely removed. And we're left with this stark, horrific realization that this evil is there and this child uh, or this young man has to partake of it in order to survive. It's really stark. It's really awful. That's uh, <laughs> yes, but I, I might point out I really want people to see this film, oh, and yeah. I point out that it was the Sundance Audience Award winner here last year at the Sundance Film Festival here in the state of Utah. So I think that uh, you're going to like it, despite the fact that it's it's not an optimistic film. Hey, Brian, I know that we're pretty much out of time, but I did want to maybe end with each of us if we could. Uh, perhaps uh, offer another suggestion for a Mexican film, perhaps about immigration, that uh, viewers who are interested in this topic and interested in Mexican cinema might consider. Sure. You know what? Let me toss out. Let me toss out two. The first one is a 2004 film by a guy named Gustavo Loza. It's called Al Otro Lado, To the Other Side. And it's a really compelling film that I've taught quite a few times where 
instead of seeing immigration from the perspective of the mother or the father who goes looking for the lost child, which is what this movie is about, what we see is the inverse. It's three stories, a young girl from Morocco, uh, a young boy from Cuba, and a young boy from Mexico, who all have absent fathers, and who for one reason or another are no longer present in their lives. In the case of the young Mexican child, the father has gone north to go work. In the case of the Moroccan girl, her father has crossed the Strait of Gibraltar and is working in the city of Malaga and has been gone for a very long time. In the case of the Cuban boy, the father basically impregnated his mother and then just disappeared. It is one of the sweetest, most tender treatments of the problem of immigration I've ever seen, and I really love it. I think it's a, it's a it's a worthwhile movie for anyone because you get the sense of immigration in a way that it inflects upon children, which I don't think we many filmmakers take that into consideration. A lot of times you'll see war movies narrated from the perspective of the child, kind of as the child grows into recognition and understanding about the horrors of war, like, for example, Pan's Labyrinth and films about the Spanish Civil War. But this one about immigration is really wonderful. So I love that one. The other one I would recommend just came out this past year, actually. It's Ya No Estoy Aquí, I'm No Longer Here by Fernando Frias. It's available on Netflix. It's about a young man who um, kind of grows up in Monterey and gets really involved with the cumbia culture, loves to dance, but also gets unfortunately and kind of naively caught up in a local gang war and has to flee and escape to the United States in order to avoid the violence that is coming for him and his family. It's a stellar right. film with great music, some fantastic dancing, some absolutely wonderful performances by some brand new actors. So I like it. And it's uh, it's up for a number of awards right now. It's it's uh, Mexico's selection for the Oscars this year. Right. And I've seen it as well. And it is an amazing film. It, it, it does have a fair amount of strong language in it. it uh, but, uh, what a, what an amazing film. Thank you for those two options. I'm going to, and that one's easy to get, right? Because it's on Netflix. I'm going to offer a suggestion that may be a little bit harder to find. And it's by the son of Juan Rufo, who we've mentioned earlier, Juan Carlos Rufo, who's also a Sundance Award winner from a few years ago. And it's a film called Los Que Se Quedan, or Those Mm. Who Remain. And I believe it's from 2008. Uh, But the reason I like the film is because within the United States, we have a tendency to imagine immigration is always about somebody crossing the border to come here and that everybody wants to come to the United States. This is a film where the documentary filmmaker, right, decided that he wanted to go and interview people who did not cross the border and thus those who remain, los que se quedan. And it's a really kind of positive reflection on why people would remain and the value that might come from not migrating. Uh, One of the real important questions of identifying feature is, why did he leave? Por que se fue? Right? That's asked a couple of times by a couple of characters. And that's a really haunting question throughout that film. You know, why do people leave? And I think that those who can see this documentary, Los Que Se Queden, Those Who Remain by Juan Carlos Rufo, will have a fun experience seeing immigration or the lack thereof from a different 
different you know i haven't seen that one i really want to see that uh this sounds really intriguing let me throw out since we're we're, we're throwing out these recommendations i want to throw out two more by uh by peruvian american director alex Rivera. one was 2008 sleep dealer it's a sci-fi imagination of the border and deals a lot with the idea of labor and the availability of cheap brown labor but now it's the idea of that labor being imported to the United States without the presence of brown bodies, because you, you have a bunch of migrant laborers who are working through kind of a bio-cybernetic set of nodes that implants in their body. It's very matrix-like in a lot of ways, but it's a fantastic meditation on immigration and on migrant labor and was part of a larger art project that involved a website called Cibraceros, the idea of cyber braceros, uh, in reference to the old work program where we brought Mexican migrant workers up to the United States during World War II. He also has one other film that just came out called The Infiltrators, which is an interesting kind of combination of some fiction film and some documentary film where a group of young dreamers gets purposefully detained by the Border Patrol in order to go and infiltrate a detention center. And it's done pretty darn well and and shows really kind of the gritty world in which people who have been detained in the United States and are being prepared for deportation have to exist. Great. Thank you, Brian. I, and I hope that uh, our audience will see identifying features as well as some of these other recommendations. There are a lot of really strong movies that deal with this topic of, of migration and violence and from both a positive and perhaps a more a stark uh, perspective. And thank you as well to our listeners for joining us today on From the Booth. Tune in to our podcast each week for insightful discussion of the film's streaming at BYU's International Cinema. Current BYU students, faculty, and staff signing up with their BYU Net ID can stream identifying features this week on BYU's Hum Media platform. For instructions, visit ic.byu.edu. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at Brigham Young University and is supported by the College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we thank our producer, Dewey Walter, our sound engineer, Marina Hegstrom-Pratt, as well as the staff at the BYU Humanities Resource Center for their help and support. We would also like to acknowledge the musical talents of Professor Greg Stallings and his son, Johnny, who are responsible for our intro and outro music. Until next week, keep streaming.